Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Ruth chapter one, we're gonna finish it up today. I, I uh, told some, the, the team backstage today, I'm just, studying Ruth has been different for me than studying even the book of John that we just covered. Uh, it's done so much for me just in my study and in uh, my understanding of things. I love the Old Testament. I believe an understanding of the Old Testament gives us an even greater love for the New Testament, the new covenant of Jesus. I heard it this past week. Those who believe in just the Old Testament are called Jews. Those who believe in just the New Testament are called heretics. Those who believe in the Old and New Testament are called Christians. So we believe that this is God's word spoken to us. So we're going to study the book of Ruth today. I want to give us a little bit of background as we move through it. Um, But to help us with that, we have created a resources page for you and for our church. So on our Sharon Church website, on the homepage there, there's a link to a resources page all about Ruth. We'll keep adding to it as this series goes on. There's a reading plan on there. There are some study tools. There are some books and articles that you can read. There are some videos to watch to help you. Also, if you're interested in being texted this reading plan, it's not just through Ruth. It's through the whole of Scripture and how it relates to what we're being taught in Ruth. You can text the word Ruth to this number, 678-671-5440. And each morning, you'll be sent a prompt of what to read that day and then how to journal and study through it. So I wanna invite you into that. You can do it now. I'm not offended. You're texting anyway. You might as well do this. Um, but you can, you can do that. And uh, just a way for us as a church to journey through this together. I don't ever wanna be a church where one man stands up here and lectures us about the Bible. I, I wanna want be a pastor, a shepherd, who is guiding and feeding the flock And so here are some resources and ways that you can feast on on the goodness of of God. Um, This book of Ruth is really about the goodness of God, um, even in the midst of evil, in the midst of hard times and evil and darkness. And so I want to give us a bit of a background uh, for friends who weren't here last week, and then we'll we'll get into the rest of it uh, this morning. All right, Uh, we talked about the doctrine of providence last week. Uh, providence has the word provide in it. So that's what providence, the providence of God is that he provides. The old uh, Hebrew word for this um, actually means he sees. The understanding of the Old Testament is that if God sees it, he will see to it. That's the idea. If God sees it, he will see to it. Um, Those of us who have children understand just because they see something doesn't mean they'll see to fixing that problem. Anybody else have kids who will see a wrapper, see trash on the ground in your own home, will see a dirty dish and will walk right past it. They see it, but they aren't seeing to it. Anybody else have, or a spouse like that? Maybe you have a spouse like that. I don't know. That's not how God works. If God, wow, wow. If God, we'll counsel later. If God... If God sees it, he's going to see to it. And we said this about the providence of God. The providence of God began in the past to be ready for the present in order to bless the future. This is the providence of God. When he moves, everything else moves along with him. 
This is the idea of the providence of God. All right, so we're gonna get into Ruth 1 here in a second. Kids, elementary kids, first through fifth graders, if I can get Miss Ashley and Miss Allison to come up uh, to grab their baskets, and I'm thankful for them and Mr. Darrell because I would have forgotten, and so I'm glad that uh, we have friends to help us with that. Uh, we have worship bags for you, so go ahead, and kids, first through fifth grade, come on up and grab yourself a worship bag uh, from Miss Ashley or Miss Allison. Things in there for you to do and to keep your hands busy and to learn and to listen. And again, I'll say it again. I believe you can pay attention. I believe you can learn from the word of God. I believe you can hear the words uh, of scripture and they can matter to you. This is not just for your parents or your grandparents or your brothers and sisters. This is for you uh, today as well. So we're excited. Thank you, Daryl and Allison, for reminding me. All right. Ruth chapter one, let's read through this a bit. I'm gonna recap and give us some uh, background because it's important for us to know the background before we dig into what's happening. Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The author of Ruth, we don't know who it is, but gives us a setting here, gives us a place and a time. The time is the days when the judges ruled. The book of Ruth doesn't continue the chronology of the Old Testament. Ruth is situated in the middle of the book of Judges, the book that comes before this. Ruth is situated in the middle of the book of Judges. So during this time when there were judges, there was no king in the land, no king, no ruler, no sovereign, just judges that God had appointed. God appointed them uh, at the end of Judges, a few times in the book of Judges. It describes the days this way. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? When everyone does whatever they think is right, where there is no absolute truth, it's just up to who, whatever you think is right, you go ahead and do that. This was the time in which the book of Ruth was written. Uh, the book of Judges has a cycle in it. I'll show you this cycle of the book of Judges just to give you an example of what they were walking in. The people of God uh, would sin. They would worship other gods. They would bow before idols. They would sin. They would run away from the promises and goodness of God, and they would sin, which would then lead them to oppression by foreign lands. They would come into the promised land, Canaan, and they would come in these foreign lands, and they would overtake the people of God. They would oppress them. Then the people of God, after enough oppression, after enough difficulty, would finally repent. They would cry out to the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord is faithful to hear our cries, and so he would deliver them. He would appoint a judge to deliver them. Don't think of gavel, um, black robe, white curly hair judge. This judge is someone who fights for justice, a justice warrior is who this would have been. God would appoint a judge. A judge would set his people free. They would enjoy a period of peace. And like we do, we don't know how to handle peace. So as the peace would go on, the people would become uh, prideful in their own eyes, thinking they earned the peace, which would then lead them into sin. And the cycle would continue. But the cycle gets worse and worse and worse as the book of Judges goes on. They just find themselves in a dark evil at the end of Judges. This is where the book of Ruth takes place. No king, everyone does what's right in their own eyes and the people of God are running uh, from what God has for them. It tells us though that um, this, there was famine in the land 
the land being the promised land, the land that God had given his people in the Old Testament, the promised land. A man of Bethlehem in Judah, which is in the promised land, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So I think we have a map, again, just to help us get our bearings here. So you see on my, on my right, your left, the promised land. Judah, Bethlehem, is in the promised land. The promised land is where um, Charles and Heston led his people through the wilderness. Moses led his people through the wilderness. And then um, Moses dies on the edge of the Jordan River, which is that blue line going up from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. Moses passes away. God appoints Joshua to then take over and lead his people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land uh, with everything the people of God could ever want, especially after wandering in the wilderness. This is where they are. But God sends famine in the promised land, particularly what's mentioned is the town of Bethlehem, which should sound familiar to you, being the place where Jesus was born. Bethlehem means the house of bread. There was a famine in the house of bread. That irony should not be lost on you. Writer of Ruth uses a number of literary devices. This is one of them. In the house of bread, there was famine. And so a man takes his family, he and his wife and two sons, and they leave the promised land. They cross the Jordan and they come down to a land called Moab. Moab, uh, it means from the father, because back in Genesis 19, I believe, uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot have to choose some land. Ends up that um, Lot gets into an incestuous relationship with a family member, and that creates the Moabites, land of Moab. And the Moabites uh, worship false gods. They don't worship the one true God. They worship false gods. And the women of Moab were known as seductresses. Moabite women were women who would prey on uh, the desperation of Hebrew men. And they would lead them to worship their gods. They worshiped gods of fertility, uh, which there were certain acts that went along with some of that worship, and they would bring Hebrew men into that act. This man leads his family to Moab to sojourn, so not to stay there, but to go in search of food. Where they lead him. Verse 2 The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. The author of Ruth is telling us their names specifically for a reason. He tells us their names. The name Elimelech, the father, his name means my God is king. Again, don't miss the irony. In the time of the judges, where there was no king, this man, Elimelech, my God is king, is featured as this story, or as the main character in the story of the book of Ruth. Elimelech, my God is king, and his wife's name is Naomi. Naomi means lovely or pleasant. My God is king marries lovely. Now, that's a couple that would probably have their names matched together if they were in our culture today. I mean, they are a power couple. They, my God is king. This is a worshiper of the one true God. And his wife's name means lovely or pleasant. This seems like a couple who seems to have it all together. Naomi gives birth to two sons. And the first one's name is Malon. And his name means sickly. So think feeble, uh, just sick. The other son's name is Kilion, which means wasting away. 
my God is king and lovely, give birth to two sons whose names mean sickly and wasting away. This story that was once um, a beautiful love story, a story of, of success and beauty, even in the birth of their two sons now, has turned dark pretty quickly. Many of us in the room today have experienced things like this, whether it's through barrenness and infertility or through the birth of a child who had some sort of disease or a stillbirth, we've experienced these things. Things uh, that were once exciting have now become seasons of despair. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. It tells us at the end of verse two, they went into Moab and they remained, they stayed there. Verse three, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Verses three through five are written um, more like just uh, like a box score of a ball game. Just facts. No emotion, no feeling, just facts. So in the Hebrew, it's very, very curse, like uh, just kind of staccato-like. It's Elimelech, uh, Elimelech died. So now she's left with two sons. Her provider, who led them into Moab, away from family, in a foreign land has passed away, but she still has her two sons. Verse four, and these two took Moabite wives. Again, Moabite women, uh, not the kind of women you bring home to mama. Moabite women, uh, seductresses known for leading Hebrew men into worship of their gods, into, into all kinds of pagan evil worship. And these two boys marry Moabite wives. Why? Well, because they're in Moab. Who else are they gonna marry? They married Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the other, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Orpah's name means turned back. It comes from the idea of a gazelle who has turned her neck back. Turned back is the name Orpah. The other daughter-in-law, her name is Ruth, and Ruth's name means friend. So you can see what the author is doing for us. Can you see? painting a picture of despair and darkness. What was once exciting, what was once a future to behold has now become a present to disdain. And then it just keeps getting worse. We find someone who was a friend in the name of Ruth. Then it gets worse in verse five. Both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman, doesn't even mention her name. In the Hebrew, it just says the woman. Not Naomi, the woman. She's lost her identity, she's lost her provider, lost her protection. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Dark, dark season for Naomi. And it just keeps getting worse. And now she's left in a foreign land without a husband and without sons, grown up adult sons to care for her. She's got nothing and she has nobody. You're gonna see throughout the book of Ruth uh, the idea of fullness versus emptiness. It keeps coming up throughout the book of Ruth. Now she is empty. She has nothing. She has no one. So that sets the stage. A.W. Tozer, a pastor and theologian, has this quote. Whatever comes into our minds, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Naomi has a moment here where things were great. They're in the promised land. She is married. A guy whose name is my God is king. He's just, he seems to be a worshiper of the one true God. She's lovely. She's pleasant. And then tragedy strikes. 10 years of tragedy in their lives. 
and she's left with no one. Whatever we think about God, however we view him, our perspective of him is the very most important thing about us. Now, throughout the book of Ruth, God does not feature as a main character in this story. He is not uh, doing, performing any actions in the book of Ruth. Most of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a main active character. In the book of Ruth, he's not. And he's never proclaimed as a main character in this story. But he's there. He's just under the surface of all that's happening. And I believe that's the point. It's the whole point. It's the point of the book of Ruth. Is that God is present if you'll just seek him. He's present and he is there. So keep this quote in mind as we move forward. Verse six, then she, this is Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. This word return is gonna show up 11 times in the rest of this chapter. So pay attention. To return from the country of Moab, for she had heard while she was in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Had visited, it's passive. She heard that God had given people food back in the promised land. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. That's in the promised land. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house, which would have been in Moab, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi, I think it's in an act of grace, telling her daughters-in-law, listen, you don't have to go with me. Don't forsake all of this just to come with me. I'm praying that the Lord, my Lord, my God, would take care of you if you would just go back to your mother's home. She's given them a way out. Just go back home. It'll be better for you if you just go home and stay here. I'll, I'll handle myself moving forward. Verse nine, the Lord, uh, the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up and they lifted up their voices and wept. So uh, if this is a, a movie, you can picture what's happening here. We've seen the introduction. It's just despair. Naomi hears somehow that there's food. There's food coming back to, to Bethlehem, to Judah. So she makes her journey back. The two daughters-in-law faithfully walk with her. They've given up their family, and now they're part of her family. And they walk with her, and she stops and says, listen, don't. Don't go with me. You stay here. There's no future for you where I'm going. You stay here and they weep. They've lost husbands too. They've lost a father-in-law and they've, they've lost husbands. They've lost hope of a family. They've lost hope of children. They don't have any children. Some scholars say they were probably barren. They've walked in despair. They've mourning just like she is mourning and she's leaving them. What they know of their family now in Naomi, she's leaving and she says, just stay here and go back to your families. She kissed them, lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, 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 we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, return my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Back in Deuteronomy, was put in, in place what's called the liberate marriage. So the idea is that if a husband passes away, it's then up to family members to come in and take care of, of the, what, the widow that's left over. Naomi is saying, listen, I'm not having any more kids. Like if, you're, if you're coming with me, you're, you're not going to find another husband. You're not going to find a husband with me. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I'm not even pregnant. I don't, I don't have a husband to make me pregnant. You're not going to have husbands. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, even if I get pregnant tonight, would you wait until they are grown? Are you going to wait until they are of age? Will you wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying and have no one to provide for you, no one to protect you? Are you going to do that with me? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Notice Naomi's words. I hate this for me. I hate it more for you, but it seems like God's against me. Coming with me will just heap more curse on you. Don't come with me. Save yourself. Go back home, find a husband, marry, be provided for, be protected. There's nothing in my future that you're going to want. Nothing. The first stage of depression is to say nothing good has happened to me. That's the first stage of depression. The second stage of depression is and nothing good will happen in the future. She's there. Nothing good has happened. Nothing good is coming. It's for your sake. Just stay here. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, like women do. And Orpah uh, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This word clung is the same Hebrew word from Genesis 2, which means to cleave. Orpah turned back. Ruth stayed a friend. Now, here's the danger of the book of Ruth. Because God is under the surface, is to teach the book of Ruth where Ruth is the hero. And we should all be a friend like Ruth. Look at what Ruth did. There's a great moral lesson about being a good friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the book, the Bible is not written about Ruth. The Bible is written about God. It's one story pointing to Jesus. So Ruth is not the point, but Ruth clings to her. Verse 15, Naomi says now to Ruth, see your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Now, Ruth 1.16 should be familiar to a lot of us, isn't it? It's been cross-stitched on things. It's been put on mugs. It's been on t-shirts. You've heard it at weddings. Here's the problem with it at weddings. We use it at, at weddings as the couple saying this to each other. You know what I've never heard? I've never heard a bride turn to her mother-in-law and say this. Have you ever heard that at a wedding? 
No, you haven't. You have not. I've never seen, I've never done a wedding and seen the bride say, hey, hold on a second, baby. Mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. And how you decorate, I will decorate. (laughs) How you cook, I will cook. And your crazy family will be my family. Right, that's never happened. But notice what she's saying. No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm all in. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, don't tell me not to come with you. I'm going. Don't tell me not to go with you. Then verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Now there's um, great significance to this because the belief, particularly for those who weren't following the one true God, the belief was whoever you were buried next to and where, whoever you were buried with, that you would go wherever they go in the afterlife. She's saying, don't, I don't want to plot next to my mama and my daddy. I'm going with you. I'm with you. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Again, to a mother-in-law. I don't know how you feel about your mother-in-law, but you're probably not saying this. I'm with you. I'm cleaving to you. Verse 18 and when Naomi saw, when the mother-in-law saw that, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more, which is just wise for all of us, especially husbands. Just say no more. She made her point. Say no more. So they make this journey back anywhere from 40 to 60 miles back, and it seems like Naomi and Ruth haven't talked at all the whole journey back. Ruth has made her point. Listen, don't tell me not to come. I'm coming. Say what you want. I'm with you. I'm going with you. And so they make their journey back. Verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It's been 10 years since they've seen Naomi when she left with her husband Elimelech and and their two sons. 10 years. There's no social media, right? She hasn't put on Facebook, hey, we're coming home. Is there a place we could stay? Anybody know a good Airbnb? I need to find somewhere. No social media, um, no phones, no, nothing like that. So she comes back and the town was stirred because of them. And the women in the town, whole other sermon. The women in the town said, is this Naomi? Now, um, 10 years. Remember when she left, her name means lovely and pleasant. And the question of the women is, I've seen her. She looks like her, but looks nothing like her at the same time. Maybe she's put on some weight, but it seems like something's gotten to her. The whole town is stirred. I believe the whole town is stirred because Naomi comes back with a Moabite woman with her. By her side. Into the town. No husband, no sons, and all she has is this trashy Moabite woman with her. Steps into town, the town is stirred because of them. Verse 20, she says to the women, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The name Mara means bitter. 
Can you hear it in her voice? Like, can you hear the pain? Can you hear the sorrow? Don't call me lovely anymore. I'm not that. I'm no longer lovely. I'm no longer pleasant. Just call me bitter. Do you hear it? Do you feel the pain? And rightfully so, wouldn't you say? 10 years. She's lost a husband and two sons in a foreign land. And she's traveled back with this Moabite woman. Just call me bitter for the Almighty. Underline that word, Almighty. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I feel like the Lord has, been, uh, has dealt bitterly with you. It's been unfair. It's felt unkind. It's felt unloving. He's felt distant. He hasn't stepped in. He hasn't been a helper. He hasn't been a comforter or a counselor. He hasn't proven himself to be uh, powerful. And she says, he's dealt very bitterly with me. And then she goes on to tell us what she means. Verse 21, I went away full. I had a husband and two sons and we had no food here, but I was still full. I had what my soul needed. And the Lord, underline that word, the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Now, I don't, I felt led to teach this months ago, and I, I don't know why. I don't know, and I still don't know why. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if we need to learn this lesson for the future. I don't even know if you need it to make sense of something in the past. I don't know if we need it for something right now. I don't know, but I know these things to be true, so I'm gonna teach them as Truth. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me lovely when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you feel it from her? Can you feel the despair and hopelessness? I had a great life. And then God took everything from me. I had all I wanted. The Lord had been good to me. And then he robbed me of my greatest joys in life. And I'm bitter. And I hate it. And I'm miserable and I'm depressed and I have no hope for the future. He's been unkind to me. He's dealt with me in ways that don't seem fair. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me lovely. From now on, I will be bitter. You call me bitter. Now, on first reading in the English, that's, those are the feelings we get. But in the Hebrew, we, we lose it in translation. There are a couple of things that we have to pay attention to. If you feel this way to the Lord, he's not offended by you. If you want to lament over your life and, and the pain that you've walked in for 10 years, five years, a month, two months, if, if, if pain is there, let's be honest as Christians, it hurts. When things are taken from us, things that we enjoy are taken from us, it's not fun, it's not joyful, it's not happy, it's bitter. It's a bitter pill to swallow when God takes a loved one. 
It's a bitter pill to swallow when you're walking in disease. It's a bitter pill to swallow when you are let go from a job, when a spouse is unfaithful to you. It's bitter. And she's just being honest. I think as Christians, we can take note from Naomi. Let's just be honest about it. And yet, in the midst of her honesty are two things I want us to pay attention to. First is this, in verse 20, and again in verse 21, she calls the Lord the Almighty. In Hebrew, the word Almighty is Shaddai. Shaddai is the word she uses, which means Almighty, which speaks of his power and might. When God reveals himself in the Old Testament, um, they worship him as Shaddai, as the Almighty One, as the Creator, the One who put the planets in motion and the stars in the sky. He, she calls him Shaddai. The idea here is the greatness of God. His, he is great. He is magnificent. He is powerful. He is sovereign, is the idea. He is the King. This is what Shaddai means. The Almighty, she says, has um, been dealt bitterly with me. He has brought calamity upon me. The One who has all the power has brought calamity on me. And yet, she still calls him Shaddai, right? The, he is great. He is powerful. But then she calls him the Lord in verse 21. The Hebrew word for Lord is the word Yahweh. This is the name that God would give himself as the deliverer of his people from slavery in Egypt. For a Hebrew, for a Jew, for Naomi... The name Yahweh hearkens back to his goodness. He's good and present. He is a deliverer who fights on behalf of his people. Almighty and Lord. He is great and he is good. He is sovereign over all. And yet he is present in the mundane. Under the surface of Naomi's bitter declaration is a glimmer of, no, but I know he's great, so why did he let it happen? He's good, so I'm going to try to trust him. The Lord has testified against me, the Lord, Yahweh. So God is great, and yet God is good. We have two problems, I think, in our modern society when it comes to following the Lord. First is that we misunderstand God. We don't know the character of God. I think if we knew the character of God, we wouldn't doubt him in times of pain. If we really knew his character. But churches, we spent way too much time telling people how to have a successful marriage and how to raise godly kids that we haven't taught the character of God. He is great. We don't know his character. And secondly, we must misunderstand good. We don't know what good is. We're like little kids um, who ask for Oreos for dinner because we think it's good. It may taste good for a season, but in the end will lead to pain and misery and death. We have lost the concept of what good is. And so the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there are no good people. The question of if God is powerful, why would he let this happen? All comes down to these two things. We don't know who God is, and we don't understand what good is. And Naomi, even in the midst of her fleshly bitterness, is still able to declare he is great and he is 
good. I want to say it to you today, this morning, he's great and he is good. Can he? Yes. Will he? If it's for your good. Almighty, the greatness of God is about his glory. His goodness is about our good. The Lord operates for his glory and for the good of mankind. You can bet on it. Everything he does is for his glory and for your good and my good. And though it may be painful for a season, if we trust in his uh, greatness, then we can walk in his goodness. It's not the first time these two names of God are mentioned in scripture. Back in Exodus, um, God has... uh, brought Moses and Joshua into Egypt and they've gone before Pharaoh and said, set the Lord's people free. God, the Lord, I am who I am, has sent me, set them free. And Pharaoh says, oh yeah? Well, if that's what you think, I'm gonna make it worse for the Israelites then. I'm gonna up their quota of bricks. I'm gonna make them work harder and have less incentive, uh, less benefits. It's, it's gonna be bad for them. And so Moses comes back to the Lord and says, what are you doing? You said if I came here and told Pharaoh to set my people free, he would. But now it's worse. What is wrong? Why aren't you doing what you said you would do? And so God doesn't raise up and say, oh, I'll show Pharaoh. God doesn't talk about how bad Pharaoh is and those other gods and Egypt and that. No, no. What God says to quiet the heart of Moses is he speaks to his character. And he says, Exodus 6, verse 2 God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers before Moses, as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. They knew me as great, but for you, Moses, I'm letting you know that I am good. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they served as sojourners. In my greatness, I gave them this. Moreover, verse five, the Shaddai gave them Canaan, uh, but Yahweh has heard the groaning of the people in Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Yahweh hears the cries of his people. Even when we want to be called Mara. He hears the cries of his people. Shaddai delivers. Yahweh hears. And that's God. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's Shaddai. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. I am good. The power of Shaddai and the goodness of Yahweh is what Ruth is speaking of here. Verse 22, back in Ruth chapter one, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, and notice what the author says, at the beginning of barley harvest. That is a cliffhanger. 
misery, pain, despair. And the author of Ruth says, hey, hey, but the harvest is coming. The Lord has brought them back at the beginning of barley harvest. Shaddai is great, Yahweh is good, and it meets here at the beginning of the barley harvest. I don't know what pain you've walked in. I don't know where you've been in Moab, whether because of somebody else or the Uh, because of your own sin and fleeing, whatever it is, but you've been there and there's a harvest coming because Shaddai has planted seeds and Yahweh has brought you home at the beginning of barley harvest. There's a guy by the name of William Cowper in the 1700s, battled depression multiple times, tried to commit suicide. And after the third attempt, he was sent to an insane, insane asylum in the 1700s. I don't know if you've seen movies about that, but it's not, it's not great. He's in an insane asylum. But this asylum turned out to be a place of grace for William Cowper. Because there, by the providence of God, was a doctor by the name of Nathaniel Cotton, who was a Christian, who cared for Cowper and showed him the love of Christ. And one day while Cowper was at the hospital, by the providence of God, he happened to find a Bible and he opened it. He grew in his faith, gave his life to Jesus. And two years after leaving the asylum, Cowper met a slave trader turned preacher by the name of John Newton, by the providence of God, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Newton mentored uh, Cowper, ministered to him, showed him the gospel, told him about the goodness of God. And Cowper Cowper wrote a poem called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, not to be confused with the U2 song. Cowper wrote this song because Newton had prompted it to him. In fact, Newton published this in a collection of hymns, including Amazing Grace, in 1773. I'm gonna read this poem to you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, upholding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God moves in a mysterious way. God interprets himself, and he will make it plain. I don't know why 10 years in Moab. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know why the famine. I don't know why the pain. I don't know. But I know that the Almighty is the Lord. And I know we can trust him. 
Pastor David Platt says that when God seems farthest from you, he may actually be laying the foundation for the greatest displays of his faithfulness to you. Because the Lord brought them back at the beginning of barley harvest. What's interesting is that Naomi goes on and on about her emptiness. Put yourself in the shoes of Ruth next to Naomi as she goes on and on about her emptiness. I've got nothing. I have no one. And there's Ruth. What we're gonna see throughout the rest of this book is that the faithfulness of God was embodied in this Moabite woman standing next to Naomi and she had no idea. You don't know. I don't know who's standing next to us and how that instance, that person, that moment is the providence of God, the faithfulness of God in the midst of it all. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll wrap up this morning. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I know that um, in the world that we live in, we've all had, had seasons, most of us have had seasons in Moab. And what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what I wanna do as, as a pastor the teaching pastor of our church is I want to teach us the character of God so that when we are in Moab, when we are in the valley, we don't doubt his power or his goodness. And just because he can and doesn't, doesn't mean he's not good. It means he knows better than we do. So anyone here this morning who would just say, I'm, I'm having a hard time today. I'm having a hard time trusting in the goodness of God. Would you just honestly raise your hand and say, it's hard for me right now. I don't know if I can. I don't know. I believe he's great. I just, it's hard to believe he's good. I'm walking in too much. Yeah. Yeah. We've been there. And the book of Ruth remind us of his goodness. Anybody here today who would say, I, the problem for me is I don't trust his greatness. I don't think he can because he never has for me. And so I'm beginning to question whether or not he can. Would you raise your hand? Just say, I'm questioning his power and his might. So the question then for many of us is, if we believe in his power, but struggle with his goodness, how do we view God? Because if he's Shaddai, but he's not Yahweh, then he's an angry dictator. But he's better than that. And how do you know? Because God sent his son for his glory and for our good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here this morning and that's what you need to hear, what you need to hear is that the greatness of God, the, the Almighty, who put the stars in the sky and planets in motion, cares about your soul. And he knows you'll never be settled until you find your rest in him. And so he's calling you to that, calling you to admit that you need a savior, believe that Jesus is the goodness of God. He is the savior, that you would confess that, that you would actually meet Yahweh today. And if that's you, would you raise your hand and say, yeah, I, I wanna follow, I need to know that. I, I wanna know Jesus, I wanna believe that today. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for um, your greatness and your goodness. And it's hard sometimes to make it all make sense, God, and I don't, I don't know. 
Uh, but even in our bitterness, God, you hear us and you hear the cries of your people. And so even throughout this week, God, would you remind us of those two things, of the Shaddai and Yahweh that combine to make your providence. God, who's given continued care and governance over all his creation and that we can trust you. Help us today, God, to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.